So I'm going to read to us from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. This is God's word for us uh, this morning. Now, an interesting question to ask, thinking about the Second World War at this point, when was the war, the war won? Uh, VE Day, obviously Victory in Europe Day, is marked on the 8th of May after the Nazi surrender on the 7th of May 1945. That officially brought um, hostilities to close in Europe. It would take until the 2nd of December for hostilities to, to cease over in Japan in the East. But of course, those were the formal markings of the end of the war. However, ask many leading historians when they feel the decisive moment that turned the tide of the war that effectively led towards the end, and you'll get very different points of view. Uh, Some say it was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which of course meant that America uh, and the might of their military machine would enter the war. They say that was potentially the start of the end. That was the moment, they say, but it would take another three and a half years, obviously, to come to fruition. Some say it was on the eastern front in Europe as Hitler overreached himself by invading Russia in June 1941. In fact, it's said that if Hitler had taken Moscow later that year and had Stalin's troops not defeated the Nazis at Stalingrad, A battle which, I mean, incredibly, it raged from most of 1942 into 1943. You know, a year's worth of battle there. If it hadn't have won that, the war would likely have prolonged many more years. Two million casualties at Stalingrad alone. We could talk about the exploits of D-Day, of course. Uh, in, 1940, in June 1944, the combined Allied forces invading Europe to take back occupied territory and push uh, back towards Germany. Many say the war had already turned by that point, but D-Day was another decisive moment, wasn't it? 
Well, these matters are debated, and I'm not sure historians will ever be able to agree on the moment where everything began to change, the moment that won the war. Or potentially, you'd be able to say that about any war, in fact. But let me tell you this. When it comes to the Great War, the Cosmic War, the war that has been raging ever since humanity and even time itself began, the war over sin, the war over Satan, and even our greatest nemesis that we will ever face, death itself, what we can say with all surety what we can say decisively and with absolute conviction this morning is that in Jesus Christ, the greatest war of them all has come to an end. He won the battle that set us on the path to the war ending. His was the decisive victory. And in fact, we can get even more specific than that. That it's not just about Jesus. Of his 33 years or so on earth, particularly his three years of ministry, were deeply illuminating. As the kingdom of God broke into a world that was in desperate need of his light and hope, those years were remarkable. I mean, he went around healing, restoring people, even raising someone from the dead, forgiving people doing remarkable things, telling people that something new was taking place here, something they had never seen before, something they would never see again in that way. A decisive moment was unfolding before their very eyes, and people got to see it. They got to watch it happening right in front of them. But we can get even more specific, can't we? What about Holy Week? His entrance to Jerusalem as king, only to be betrayed, arrested, and hung on a cross just a few days later. Decisive moments. We think about the impact of sacrifice on a day like today, and all of us, I'm sure, are deeply moved and touched by it. We wouldn't be where we are without great sacrifice. Churchill would say in 1940, wouldn't he, never was so much owed by so many to so few. But dial that up to the Son of God himself. God himself allowing wicked men to falsely accuse, try and crucify him so that he could take upon himself a punishment that was rightly ours. This was the most pivotal of moments. Only he could do it. Only him. Only God could die for the sins of humanity and take our guilt from us. Decisive. Decisive. <laughs> but we can get even more specific than that, can't we? Even more specific. I know how specific are we going to go this morning, but we can get even more specific than that. And this gets us to 1 Corinthians 15 and what Paul was writing about to the church in Corinth in this chapter. Even more specific than his life, even more specific than the manner and meaning of his death, the one event that would ultimately win the war was still yet to come. Because three days later, of course, he didn't just remain dead, he rose from the dead. Because, you know, his life spoke of many things, incredible things. His, his death took the most vital of things from us, our punishment for sin. But, you know, without the resurrection, 
there would be no hope of new life once again. A hope beyond even death itself. Because when you think about the cross for a minute, think about what was going on in those moments of the cross. It seemed like death was winning, didn't it? Very much so. The disciples were scattered. Mary was crying. Uh, Death took Jesus, briefly. He died and everyone saw it. And yet the moment just prior to his death, as he hung on the cross, he cried out words which injected a seed of doubt into the whole equation. He cried out, It is finished. And you can imagine if you heard those words at the time, you think, oh, well, he's talking about his death then, isn't it? He's finished. (laughs) He literally is finished. Um, But of course, that's not what Jesus meant at all. When he says the words, it is finished, he meant mission complete. He meant task done. He meant the next steps. Just watch this. And you'll see what's going to happen next. As uh, the the darkness of the earth covered it in those moments, in those hours, as he cried out his last, as as just less than a mile away up in the temple, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, out of the blue. It just happened at the moment of his death. And the way was open, and suddenly people were asking, what's going on? How is this even possible? That should not happen. That way should be closed forever. Only the high priest once a year goes in there. That was it. No other person, no other people. Everyone was flabbergasted. What did it all mean? What about the third day? when Mary went and visited the tomb to anoint the body. But the tomb was empty. Uh, Peter and John are called, aren't they? Come and see. Come and see this empty tomb. What's, you know, we don't know where he is. What, what's happening? Can you find him? Do you know where he is? Discussions had. They rush into the tomb. He's not there. He's gone. They go and try and investigate. Mary stays there. She stays in the garden crying, trying to come to terms with what's happened and what on earth may be going on. And someone she thinks is the gardener begins talking to her. Woman, he says, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And she lashes out at him. I mean, you would be. You'd be angry at the time, wondering if he's to blame. Sir, if you have carried him away, she said, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. If this is some kind of a joke... Come clean. I just want to grieve for the man who gave me more dignity, who showed me and others more love than you can possibly imagine, and who died in front of us in the most horrific way. Tell me where you've put him and let me grieve. To which one word changes everything as the supposed gardener looks at her and says simply her name, Mary. Mary. 
And suddenly, everything changes. Suddenly, the resurrection we realize changes absolutely everything. If we're thinking about moments to win a war, okay, that's it. That's the moment. He's rising to life. Had he just died, it would have been a great example of sacrifice. But if he hadn't risen, we would have had no hope. In fact, the gospel doesn't work without the resurrection to new and, in fact, renewed life once again. The battle still rages out there. The battle against sin and against sickness, and we will one day all have to face the inevitability of death. Millions have done so before us. Millions have died in wars throughout the centuries. And sadly, we'll continue to do so. But what the gospel itself says is that with the resurrection instills in us is that through faith in Jesus Christ, the war has been won, even if the battles will continue to rage until the moment he comes back and puts it all to right once again. Because that's also his promise. And it's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will round off this chapter by declaring. It's almost as if he shouts some words from the rooftops. We use them at funerals a lot. He says at the end of the chapter, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because in Jesus we discover that death has no victory. It really doesn't have any sting. Thanks be to God, he says. He gives us and has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word again. He gives us the victory. Victory. You can raise the flag. You can put out the banners. You can say, Jesus has one. Yes? Amen. Amen to that. Now, why did he say all of this? Well, he, he was writing to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was, I mean, let's not beat around the bush, uh, a confused and, frankly, pretty disparate group of Christians. Okay. Uh, anyone who says... Uh, we must get back to being the church of the New Testament, okay? Uh, have you read Paul's letters? <laughs> have you read what they actually say, what it was like? I mean, churches in places like Corinth and elsewhere were dearly loved by him, but grief did they have their problems. Uh, the Galatians abandoned the gospel in favor of going back to Old Testament laws again. The church in Thessalonica, obsessed with questions about uh, the end times and had a big issue with leadership. Corinth, well, we may do this letter at some point, but morally and spiritually all over the shop. One thing in particular they were saying, or at least some of them were saying, was that there was no actual resurrection. Not that Jesus wasn't raised, but that they would not be raised themselves in the same way. They were saying things like, we've all got to be hyper-spiritual here, in the here and now, and get to the point where our faith will enable us to live the perfect life without any sin or sickness or potentially even without death so that there was no need for a resurrection. Some were believing that kind of idea, which when you look at the pattern of humanity, of course can't be correct. They weren't even close to living out. I mean, even behind the scenes, the public hyper-spirituality that they had among their gatherings that were chaotic and 
people speaking in tongues all over the place and all sorts of things going on that was not at all ordered or managed in any kind of way, trying to get one up on each other to look more spiritual than the next person. I mean, do you still want to be part of the church? <laughs> I say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. It's true of every one of us, isn't it? We would because none of us are perfect. And so what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is cut through all of the smoke, through all of the the fluff and one-upmanship and rivalry, bad teaching, and simply tell them, look guys, here is what you've got to focus on. Focus on this. Because to focus on the gospel and to understand its implications, to trust in the resurrection itself and to see the future that God has got in store for us, that will more than do enough for you and I to live our lives for Jesus Christ in the here and now. More than enough to follow his ways. And so there's three brief things that he tells them in the passage. First of all, he says this. He says, the gospel, here it's called, verses 1 to 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, not any other, by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, when there is a major crisis, uh, people begin looking beyond themselves in, in numbers not usually seen at other times. We, in fact, saw it at the, at the start of the pandemic. UK church attendance runs at about 4 to 5%, about that. It's quite low, really, when you think about it, but about 4 to 5% in this country. During the opening month or two of the pandemic, it's estimated about 25% of the population tuned in to watch a church service of some sort at some point within the first few months or so. In fact, the same happened at the outbreak of war in 1914. They saw the same thing happen. For a number of weeks, church attendance rocketed as a nation in crisis turned to prayer, interestingly and were drawn to come to church and to seek God. Now, it only lasted a few weeks, because that's the fickleness of who we are, isn't it? But, but, but it's interesting, isn't it? What is it about a crisis that causes that? Do you know, I think it's ultimately, ultimately, that people realize our world is not as sure as we think it is that it isn't, that we are not in control nearly as much as we think we are. And when something out of control happens, people look to God and find comfort simply because he is someone beyond our world, beyond our usual experience, who even those who don't ordinarily believe can look to in times of trouble and find some hope. It's why Paul says to the Corinthians that that is what is of first importance, the foundation rock on which they must base their lives, their faith, even what they do as a church. It's all got to be about the gospel itself. That is the rock by by which whatever happens in our world and whatever we personally go through, even what others may feel out there, it is by that message that we are saved. And so Paul says, make it occupy the top priority place. Not just in your walk with God, 
but in your life as well. Because it is what will keep you standing firm. You know, we, we, we think of remembrance today. Paul writes to remind them of the gospel, to make sure they know it. And in fact, he says they must do two things in response. First, get it clear once again. And that's what he's about to outline to them. And second, hold it firm. Keep on keeping on with it. Make sure we haven't got it mixed up with other things. Make sure we haven't got caught up in other things that the world has said about the Word of God. Make sure that we keep the gospel as it is supposed to be so that we can base our lives on something firm, so that we can pursue something that will keep us keeping on, keep us going, and that will keep us, importantly, on the right track as well, not allowing us to go off on tangents. Because none of us want to fall foul of what Paul says in the passage. What he says is the danger. And he does say, he's saying this to a church, okay, of believing in vain because we've misunderstood what the gospel is. We've misunderstood what it truly does in our lives, which gets us to point two. The gospel, know its truth. Here's what Paul wants to remind them of. And reminding is important because, I mean, let, let's face it. <laughs> I don't know how your memory is, but even I, even mine, I, I'm sometimes shocked how quickly I could forget something once told it. Uh, there was a, a couple in their 90s who were having trouble remembering things, so they went to their doctor for advice. And he told them to, they were, they were fine, but advised them to write things down. Later that evening, the husband got up from his chair to go to the kitchen for a snack. And he asked his wife if uh, she wanted something. Could you bring me a bowl of ice cream, she asked. Sure, he replied. Do you think you should write that down to remember, he said. No, that's fine. I can. I can. I can remember it. And I'd like some strawberries on it, too. Do you need to write that down? No, no, no. I can remember that. Ice cream with strawberries. You could tell he was getting a little irritated. And some whipped cream. Can you remember all of that? The doctor said you should write things down, you know. For goodness sake, I can remember that. I don't need to write it down, he said. A bowl of ice cream with strawberries and whipped cream. I've got it. And he stormed off into the kitchen. Fifteen minutes later, he returned with a plate of bacon and eggs. The wife stared at it for a moment and said... But where's my toast? Well, jokes aside, and bad memories withstanding, how quickly it can be that we forget the very things that are most important to us. How easy it is to do that. What we're supposed to do. How we're supposed to live. In fact, what we're living for in the first place. It's why Paul goes to pains over his explanation of what he calls first importance, because that is what it is. 
This is what you need to know and be assured of and remember, particularly in times of crisis, we would say on a day like today, but everything else in reality falls secondary to this, to these truths, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Don't underestimate how vital that is. You know, you want assurance in your life. You want assurance about the future. You want to know that everything that needs to be dealt with before God has been dealt with. You need to know that truth. We need to know that truth. To hide it in our hearts once again and time and time again. That Christ died for our sins. We can't say it enough. Just as the scriptures said he would. And just as the scriptures said he of course did. It takes the fear away, doesn't it? It takes the fear away. The fear before God out of the way. The trembling at the knees and the knocking of the knees we might find because we know we're sinners in the presence of a holy God and have fallen short in all sorts of ways. You want that fear dealt with? Know that Christ has dealt with that fear. He's dealt with your sin, with the guilt, with all that we feel in that regard. Know that he died for us. Simple faith in that sacrifice means we need not fear. Need not fear the future, and we need not fear for our eternity. It's interesting, isn't it, that he says, though, if you hold on to the gospel, if you hold on to it, keep it, keep this in mind. Don't get sidetracked by something else, by some other way of doing things. This is it. If you hold on to it, you can't lose your salvation. He died for you. He's dealt with your sin. Do you believe it? I think on days like today, when we remember wars and we remember battle, it reminds us, doesn't it, how fragile life really is. It does remind us of that fact. Just as sickness and suffering does. In those moments, we want to know, don't we? We want to know that everything is dealt with before God. And what Paul says is that in Jesus Christ, we can know that. We can know it for sure. And nothing can take that away if we have truly put our faith in him. Uh, That he was secondly raised on the third day according to the scriptures that he actually did rise from the dead. We're not, we're not talking about some myth or legend here. He really did rise. Cheating death of what it assumed was its victory and handing then that victory on to each of us. I mean, how that works and how that, how that works itself out in practice is a bit of a mystery, isn't it? But Jesus makes it possible. He did it. God raised him from the dead. And then somehow, in some way, he passes that on to us and says... This is for you too. Have this. This is my gift to you. This is my giving of myself so that you can have new life. This wasn't just a death and a good death and a a death on someone's behalf. This was a new life to give. And it's given for each one. Do you know, in Jesus Christ, you can look death right in the eye and say, you have got no power over me. 
no power over my life. I may pass from this world, but that is not the end. You've got no hold over me. When the great Billy Graham, who of course was committed to the simple gospel message, when he passed away a few years ago, one of his quotes surfaced, and what they say, don't they? It went viral. I don't know if they're going to use that after the pandemic, but anyway. Um, But it went viral. And he once said this, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Dead? Don't you believe it for one second. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. The last enemy, it's been destroyed. It's been cut down and done away with by our incredible and wonderful Savior. We simply change our address and we go to be with God in heaven. And if you need any help in believing that, Paul says, he says, check the eyewitnesses. Just check with the people who saw it. Of course, back then they could. Cephas, that's Peter's other name. It's a, it's a different version of his name. But Peter was still alive. Most of the 12, in fact. Perhaps check with one of the 500 who saw, heard, and experienced him at the same time after the resurrection. Even Paul, even Paul himself, who was writing to them in the there and then, got to experience the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. This was no pie-in-the-sky phenomena or mass hallucination. These were people who at different times and different points saw him for themselves. They knew whom to look for, and they knew whom they saw. It's what God has given to us in his word from these people so that we can read it and believe it for ourselves. Because it's there in black and white for us. The greatest of truths, the most wonderful of assurances, that Jesus is alive and well, and through his gospel, he changes lives in the here and now. They say this little passage in 1 Corinthians 15, this little creed, you might call it, you know, the the, the bit about he died according to the scriptures, he rose again on the third day according to scriptures, this sort of repetition and the use of the words. They say what it is, is it's actually a verbal creed that the early church used. And they can date it right the way back. Because of the link, right the way back to Peter, you've got Paul, you've got the eyewitnesses, you've got the twelve, and then it goes back to Peter himself. This this little phraseology, this little uh, creed that they give, they can take it right the way back to those days and weeks even after the resurrection itself. It's that early that they were likely sharing in these words together as a way of reminding themselves of what had just happened so they could pass it on to others in a simple way. Jesus is alive and well and his gospel works. And that gospel changes lives in the here and now as well, which is what the final heading is, that we're to see its power. Because where Paul ends is where we should end too. 
You think about Paul, don't you? You do think about him. He's the one in the mix here, writing these words. Even the greatest of sinners, as he describes himself, can be changed by the power of God, by his grace and the renewal of his presence. That's what he's saying, isn't it? The last part of the passage. Even the least of the apostles, this great persecutor of the church, who was trying to destroy them, he could be turned to Christ because the grace of God is so irresistible that when it truly gets a hold of a person, you can't help but not turn to him. And you know, once changed, once the grace of God really impacts our hearts, when it goes in here and changes us, when we realize who we are before God once again, when we know his promises to us once more, and it's in here, it's not just up here as some sort of thing we think about, it's right in here that we know that we know that it's true and he did it for us, we've given our lives to him, it truly does change everything for us too. Do you know, God can do incredible things through his power at work in a person's life. He can do incredible things with a person so fixed upon him to base their lives on just a simple message that people recited to one another, that they told one another in the early church, that it's that simple and yet does change everything. And it changes the way we even think about life as well. I'll finish with a story. There was an account in World War II of a man by the name of Desmond Doss. I think I've got a photo on the screen there. He was an American whose story is now cinematized in the film uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Um, I should say, uh, if you're squeamish, don't watch the film, okay? If you've seen Pro Saving Private Ryan, it's about that kind of level, okay? It's not for the faint of heart, I will just warn. But Doss was a Christian, and a conscientious objector, in fact, who would not bear arms, but who still felt the need to sign up to the armed forces in World War II. So he joined the army, planning to become a medic. Uh, as he did his training and among the ranks, he was reviled, he was treated terribly because he wouldn't even touch a gun. His superiors tried to get him discharged as having mental incapacity. They even took him to be court-martialed at one point because he wouldn't do what they were telling him to do, even though he was just training to be a medic. In the film, uh, the, the actor explains the reasoning, and whether these are actually his words or not, I don't know, but, but in the film he says, it isn't right that the other men should fight and die, that I would just be sitting at home safe. I need to serve. I've got the energy and the passion to serve as a medic, right in the middle with the other guys. No less danger, just while everyone else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together again. <laughs> that was his way of processing it. Anyway, all attempts to send him home failed. And he ended up facing the Japanese on the island of Okinawa, on a place called Hacksaw Ridge. Every time the Americans made it up onto the cliff tops, they would be thrown off again. 
right back off by the Japanese, usually with heavy casualties in tow. And one battle, his regiment, Doss's regiment, is called up, and the same thing happens. They, they climbed up. They took territory um, with heavy losses, and the very next day, the same thing happens. The Japanese retaliate. They're thrown back off of the ridge. They have to uh, go down this cliff face on the edge of it, and they're thrown right back off as Japan retaliates. Except this time, as others scramble off to get to safety below, Doss himself stayed up on the top. He didn't go off the top with the other men. Without any means of defending himself, he stayed on the battlefields. And before long, off of the ridge, just one at a time, soldiers were lowered down. And then another. And then another would be lowered down on a rope. And the, the soldiers at the bottom of the ridge were going, what on earth's going on? Well, who, who are, who's doing this? Who, who's this person? It was only when they heard from one of the casualties who said it was Desmond Doss who was up there doing this, what he was doing was going out into the battlefield finding someone who is still alive. He even sent a couple of Japanese soldiers down as well. And he would take them back to the ridge, tie them up uh, in the ropes, and lower them with his own bare hands off of the ridge so that they could get back to safety once again and get medical treatment and help. 75 times this happened. 75 times men were lowered off of the ridge. And being a Christian, he said that every time he managed to get someone back to safety and off of the ridge, his prayer was exactly the same. And it went like this. He would pray, one more, Lord, just one more. And off he would go out again. Out of the 16 million people who served in the US military in World War II, 43, just 43, received the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery and courage under fire. Desmond Doss was one of those 43 men. He could look death in the eye and not be overcome because he knew the one who had beaten death. He knew. And for that reason, he could be used by that Savior to help save many others and one day enter into a paradise himself. His faith was firm and it wasn't set on the temporal things around him, the fragile things of this world. It was set on the gospel. On what the Word of God said, the eternal Savior of God. That's a faith set on the most important, the first important things. That's a faith that stands the test of time. And so as we remember on this day, many sacrifices, how does remembering the gospel affect you? How does it affect you? 
May we stand firm on the promises it brings, the life it gives. May it hold us firm in those times where we go through trial and trouble. And may we be a people who, like Doss, don't have to look on in fear. And I think it would be fair to say, perhaps even like Paul the persecutor, turned church planter and evangelist for Jesus, might we be a people who say of ourselves, well, Lord, just one more. Just one more. May we be those people and may we seek to be that person to others because we know what God has given us. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we we thank you as we've been able to reflect on the theme of remembrance. We thank you that we have your word, your truths in black and white, that we don't need to go elsewhere to find your truths or some other place, that we have it in a book that we can open and read that reminds us of what is of first importance, particularly on a day such such as today, where we reflect on sacrifice, where we reflect on lives lost, where we reflect on the brokenness of our world, where we even reflect on the brokenness of our own lives and everything that we go through. We thank you that the simple gospel and the truth of the resurrection is what can hold us firm. We thank you that it gives us new life. It gives us hope. It gives us the ability to even look death itself in the face and say, you have not won and you will not win. Because Jesus Christ has died and risen for me and for us. And so, Lord, help us to trust in your great truths. Remind us of them day by day as we live our lives. Remind us of Jesus and may he hold us firm and may we hold to him all the days of our lives. We thank you and we praise you. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.